A fresh round of Russian missile strikes targets the infrastructure of the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv, knocking out power and heat to millions. It's Friday, November 25th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, the latest from Ukraine, plus how President Biden will make a decision on whether to run for a second term. The family is going to be deeply involved in whatever decision he reaches because that's who he is. Also this hour, finding ways to help countries that face growing debt and the most severe effects of climate change. And remembering Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts on what would have been his 100th birthday. We could see ourselves as Charlie Brown. It just jumped off the page compared to the cartoon strips of the time. Sports Patriots lose in Minnesota and the U.S. plays England today in the World Cup. Forecast says cloudy with a chance for rain today. Highs in the 50s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Russian missile attacks across Ukraine this week have dealt acute infrastructure damage, cutting off power to major regions including Kyiv, Odessa, Kharkiv and Lviv, even as winter sets in. World Health Organization Director for the region Hans Klug visited the town of Dnipro and called special attention to Russian attacks on civilian health facilities in Ukraine. As a medical doctor myself, I am so saddened and actually outraged to see that those attacks on health and healthcare facilities continue. As of today, WHO has reported objectively above 700 attacks on healthcare. This is a very clear breach of international law. Health should never be a target. Meanwhile, UN Human Rights Chief Volker Turk says 77 civilians have been killed through Russian attacks on infrastructure since October, and millions in Ukraine face extreme winter hardship. The UN Human Rights Council has ordered an international probe into Iran's violent crackdown of women's rights protests. China tried but failed to remove the paragraph that refers to the fact-finding mission, and it will be operational until next year. As the BBC's Imogene Fawkes reports, West diplomats say the mission will send a powerful signal of support to Iranian women. Iran lobbied hard against this fact-finding mission. Its diplomats, backed by China and Venezuela, argued the proposal was an arrogant political ploy and inappropriate interference in domestic affairs. But the UN's latest figures, 14,000 people arrested since the protests began, more than 300 killed, and the graphic scenes of Iran's police beating young women persuaded enough member states to back an independent investigation. The BBC's Imogene Fawkes reporting. This week, the U.S. Education Department began notifying student loan borrowers that they had been approved for debt forgiveness. But an ongoing legal battle means that loan balances will not be changing anytime soon. NPR's Anil Oza reports. The Education Department began sending updates this week to borrowers who have been approved for President Biden's debt cancellation plan. The emails, signed by Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, say, quote, We reviewed your application and determined that you are eligible for loan relief. But that relief is currently tied up in a legal battle. A federal judge in Texas vacated the program earlier this month, and in a separate lawsuit, an appeals court issued an injunction against it. In the email sent to borrowers, the department says, we believe strongly that these lawsuits are meritless, and the Department of Justice has appealed on our behalf. For now, the department has closed its debt relief application website. Anil Oza, NPR News. 
Wall Street Dow futures are up 59. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Today is the unofficial kickoff to the holiday shopping season. A new survey from the consulting firm Deloitte finds shoppers expect this year to be extra expensive, but it's actually retailers who appear to be at the steepest disadvantage. WBUR's Rob Lane has more. Boston-area consumers say they expect to buy less this season but spend more. They're concerned high inflation and supply chain issues will drive prices up. But sellers tell the survey they're dealing with excess inventory. Deloitte's Anthony Jardim says many retailers will have to steeply discount goods. He predicts the ones who'll benefit are those that specialize in offloading overstock for cheap. TJ Maxx locally, Burlington Coat Factory locally that are going to be doing really well because that's where they really thrive. They're seeing deals like never before. Jardim says he expects prices to fall further and further as Christmas gets nearer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. The state's 15 regional transit authorities will be offering free rides from today through the end of the year. The Tri-Transit Holiday is being funded by a $2.5 million state grant. Some agencies will go fare-free every day. Others will do so only on certain days. The Cape Cod Regional Transit Authority, for example, will not charge riders on Fridays and Saturdays. Administrator Tom Kerr hopes this will get more people to ride the bus on the Cape. The traffic that we experience it used to be just summer traffic, but now all year round we have you know, significant traffic gridlock in areas. And so this will take some vehicles off the road as well as you know, reduce the carbon footprint. The state grant does not cover the MBTA. President Biden's on Nantucket celebrating Thanksgiving. Yesterday, he delivered pies to first responders on the island. The Bidens have more than a 40-year tradition of spending the holiday on Nantucket. The president and first lady are expected to stay on the island through the weekend. A police union in Lawrence says it has no confidence in the leadership of the city's police chief. The no-confidence vote this week against Chief Roy Vasque accuses him of being a poor leader and making bad policy decisions in his five years on the job. The Lawrence Police Superior Officers Association says the vote passed by an overwhelming majority of its 31 members. Chief Vasque tells the Eagle Tribune he believes the vote is a personal vendetta against him. It's 706. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Holiday Pops, helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of the year by unwrapping the magic of the Holiday Pops, December 1st through 24th, holidaypops.org. And the Provider Group, an insurance brokerage and benefits firm serving high net worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance, providerig.com. In sports, Patriots lost to the Vikings 33-26 last night in Minneapolis. Pats will play again next Thursday when they host the Buffalo Bills. There's a doubleheader at the Garden today. Bruins and Carolina Hurricanes face off at 1 o'clock. Then tonight at 8 o'clock, the Celtics play the Sacramento Kings. This afternoon at the Men's World Cup, the U.S. takes on England. New England Revolution will host a watch party at the Royale Boston, a club in the theater district. Rev's marketing vice president, Cahal Conlon, calls the excitement around this match electric. It's a massive game. It's England. It's the World Cup. It's Black Friday, right? So, you know, everybody's off work anyway, and everybody can, um, you know, take the afternoon and, and spend it with a large group of fellow soccer fans and hopefully cheer on the U.S. to a big victory. In the first game at the World Cup today, Iran beat Wales 2-0. 
In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy today. Showers likely, also a chance for some minor flooding along the coast in Boston, the North Shore, Cape and the Islands. Highs today in the lower 50s. Right now, it is 47 degrees in Boston at 708. WBUR supporters include ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Ian Martinez. It's been another terrible week in America for mass shootings, with six killed at a Walmart in Chesapeake, Virginia, Tuesday night, and then five killed on Saturday in a nightclub in Colorado Springs. In Colorado, some are asking why police hadn't used the state's red flag law to disarm the suspect, Anderson Lee Aldrich, who reportedly had an encounter with police over an alleged bomb threat last year. Here to talk about the record of red flag laws, we're joined by NPR's law enforcement correspondent, Martin Costi. Uh, Martin, first off, uh, a quick reminder, red flag laws, what are they? Well, the official name in a lot of states is Extreme Risk Protection Order, or ERPO. Uh, the idea there is if a family member or a police officer is worried about someone's state of mind and they see an extreme risk of some violence, they can ask a judge to temporarily take that person's guns away. And this idea has caught on in some places. 19 states and the District of Columbia now have versions of the law. Including Colorado, which passed its uh, red flag law in 2019. So do we know why it was not used to disarm Anderson Lee Aldrich? We don't because we don't know important details about that incident last year. The court records are sealed. Colorado generally uses uh, red flag laws less often than other states, possibly because of politics there and the fact that some county level elected officials in Colorado have opposed the law. They see it as a violation of the Second Amendment. But on Monday, the Colorado Springs police chief, Adrian Vasquez, said he did believe in using the law. We have to have credible information to be able to do that. So if we do, then of course we should act on it. So does it just pretty much come down to gun rights politics in the place you happen to live? Not necessarily. Um, I was talking to Veronica Pear about this. She's a social epidemiologist with UC Davis. She researches police attitudes toward red flag laws. And she says in a survey they did, some of the officers did just say, we don't like the laws because of gun rights. But she says there was a far more important factor at work. What we found was that law enforcement officers who had some sort of either personal experience with ERPOs, like serving them, or had some training, those law enforcement officers were much more likely to say that they would use an ERPO in a range of different case scenarios that we presented to them. So it sounds like being familiar with red flag laws maybe makes police more willing to use them? Well, that's what her research is showing, and this may explain why, for example, Florida uses red flag laws the most. Their law was passed in response to the Parkland school massacre, and it got a lot of publicity because of that, so a lot of people are aware of it. But there's also the practical matter that cops are more likely to use a law when they know how it works. Take a listen here to Kim Wyatt. She's with the prosecutor's office in Seattle. Laws do not implement themselves, so we really need education around how do you file these? What court do you go to? What is that process? How long is that order in place for and what does that order apply to? Wyatt is part of a group that I've been following for a couple of years. They're a staff of full-time red flag order specialists. They help the police departments in the region file the paperwork and see the judges. She figures that they consult on at least one case a day now in her region, and the numbers go up during the holidays or after a high-profile act of violence. 
Just last week, she helped get emergency temporary orders removing guns in cases involving threats to schools, and she says she, they could act that fast because they know the routine. And this model of a specialized staff is now being tried in some other places around the country. All right, that's NPR's law enforcement correspondent, Martin Costi. Thanks a lot, Martin. You're welcome. Ukraine's limited air defenses have worked far better than expected against Russia's much larger air force. But Russia has ramped up its attacks in the last month. Can Ukraine cope with the onslaught against civilians and the electricity grid as winter sets in? NPR's Greg Myrie has our story from Kyiv. When Ukrainian soldier Viktor Ganich was given a brief leave from his military unit, he went to stay at the apartment of his mother and stepfather in Kyiv. Then came an early morning barrage of Russian drone attacks on the city. Policemen recorded one of those drones as they tried, in vain, to shoot it down. One drone that morning slammed into the apartment where Ganich was staying. He survived. His mother and stepfather were killed. Honestly, it's a very strange feeling. Because on the front line, I witnessed bullets above my head, tank shelling, mortar shelling, and I survived. And when I came here to Kyiv, it's strange because it just feels like it's destiny. Russia dramatically stepped up its air campaign last month with waves of drones and missiles. On Wednesday, Russia fired 70 cruise missiles. This knocked out electricity, heating, and water in many cities and further damaged the already fragile power system. Ukraine says it's shooting down about two-thirds or even three-quarters of the incoming Russian weapons. But it can't stop them all. Colonel Yuri Enot is the spokesman for Ukraine's Air Force. Ukraine does not have enough firepower to be fully protected from the sky. That is why we ask the whole world to help Ukraine by any means. Ukraine's limited air defenses have been geared to protect the most important government and military sites. But the recent, more widespread Russian attacks have left Ukraine unable to protect the entire energy system with so many potential targets. The result is rolling power cuts for now and the looming possibility of extended blackouts. I think Ukraine does face a real challenge from a concerted Russian strike campaign that's focused on the electricity grid. Michael Kaufman is an expert on the Russian military at CNA, a research group just outside Washington. I think it is taking a toll over time. Ukraine is able to manage it right now, fix blackouts, and most Ukrainian cities that I've seen are enacting electricity conservation. They're quite dark at night, even though they have power. Ukraine has been contending with Russian ballistic missiles and cruise missiles since the war began. Now Russia is firing swarms of loud, low-flying, slow-moving drones acquired from Iran. This has further complicated Ukraine's air defenses. Kelly Greco with the Stimson Center, a Washington think tank, explains. It can loiter, which makes it different from a missile, and then decide to die bomb and explode on impact. She says all these Russian weapons require different defenses. I don't think there are enough air defense systems probably in the world to be able to create that kind of impenetrable barrier that we would like to be possible right now. President Volodymyr Zelensky recently announced the arrival of new Western air defenses. They include a U.S. contribution known as NASAMs, which protect the White House and other government buildings in Washington. 
This certainly helps, says Michael Kaufman, but integrating different weapon systems is tricky. He noted that Ukraine is now managing 14 separate artillery systems, including many sent from the West this year. The issue is that if they get a couple air defense systems and they have a few batteries of each, it will create enduring challenges for maintenance, for operation, for training. These challenges play out daily. At an apartment building in central Kyiv, a Russian missile crashed into the third floor, killing an elderly woman. Power was knocked out in the neighborhood. On the darkened streets, I asked a young man, Vladimir Yanachuk, if Ukrainians were ready for this winter. We are not afraid about this. Ukrainians are not afraid about this, and uh, winter will be hard. But uh, this winter uh, will be hard uh, not only Ukrainians, for Russian soldiers too. As we spoke, the light suddenly flickered to life in the surrounding apartment buildings. On this night, at least, there would be heat and electricity. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv. Should it be soccer or football? It's a highly charged question as the U.S. plays England in the World Cup this afternoon. Scrolling through Twitter as the U.S. played its first match of this World Cup campaign against Wales, it didn't take long to find some mean tweets aimed at American soccer fans. Things such as... The USA game is actually quite decent for people who call football soccer. Or... I hope the USA lose. I hate seeing people who call football soccer happy. Of course, America is one of the few nations that call the beautiful game soccer, along with the likes of Canada and Australia. But for the co-host of the soccer podcast, Men in Blazers, and author of the new book, Gods of Soccer, Roger Bennett, it shouldn't matter either way. Why does there have to be a right term would be my response. And then my second question would be, who gives a crap? Now a U.S. citizen himself, he's got a theory about why fans overseas like to dunk on Americans. Or should that be score a goal on Americans? America is and has been for some time the world's superpower and the very few times that the world has the upper hand over America you jump on it and where does the world have the upper hand over the United States more than anywhere it's on the men's football field the thing is the people calling it soccer are probably right and we've known this for a while Soccer is a 100% British term. That's Tony Collins, a professor of history at De Montfort University in the UK. He told NPR during the last World Cup in 2018 that the word soccer comes from an abbreviation of association football to distinguish it from rugby football, the game where you tackle and throw the ball with your hands. In the elite private schools, the um, shortening of words was a very common habit. Rugby football was shortened to rugger, and association was also shortened in the same way to become soccer. Turns out Americans have been using one of the game's earliest names and kept it even as it became less fashionable in Britain. At the risk of sparking a diplomatic row, we put that to the UK's ambassador to the United States, Karen Pierce. That really surprises me. I didn't know that. I can tell you the Latin for it, which is pediludium, uh, which may be what we have to go on to call it. Uh, you're right that rugby used to be called rugby football in full. And it is certainly true that American English has a lot of older words from English in it. So that would make sense. So what then of all the Brits making fun of Americans for using the word soccer? Time for a national apology, maybe, from His Majesty's government? Well, I like to think that America wouldn't be America if the Brits hadn't lost in 1776. Uh, so no, I don't think any national apology is needed uh, from either side. Uh, but I do think that when we come onto the pitch 
for the England versus USA game. Uh, certain people here uh, will be cheering very, very hard for England and may the best team win. Sounds like it's time to settle this debate on the soccer field. I, I mean the football pitch. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiar's Ian Boston. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, marking what would have been the 100th birthday of Peanuts creator, cartoonist Charles M. Schultz, this weekend. It's 720. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more. Careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at vrtx.com. H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, performing Handel's Messiah with its Hallelujah Chorus tonight through Sunday at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. And Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. Join WBUR for a Boston holiday tradition like no other, our annual live reading of A Christmas Carol on Tuesday evening, December 20th. Your favorite WBUR voices perform the classic story live at the Omni Parker House in Boston. Proceeds benefit Rosie's Place, a sanctuary for women in need. Details at WBUR.org events. Come out for the season and Rosie's Place. Tickets are at WBUR.org events. Yeah, in the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy today with showers, especially this morning. Highs in the low 50s. Right now, 48 degrees in Boston at 721. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Total Wine and More, where in-store teams can recommend a bottle of wine, spirit, or beer for any occasion. Learn more at TotalWine.com. Spirits not available in Virginia or North Carolina. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more and support at AJWS.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. This Thanksgiving weekend, a lot of families are going to be gathered around the TV to watch Charlie Brown get tricked yet again. Charlie Brown, oh Charlie Brown. I can't believe it. She must think I'm the most stupid person alive. Come on, Charlie Brown. I'll hold the ball and you kick it. That scene from a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving ends exactly how you'd expect with Charlie Brown flat on his back. That was Lucy, by the way, in case you were wondering who the other person in that clip was. Now, tomorrow, Charles Schultz, who created those classic characters from the comic strip Peanuts, would have turned 100. Here to talk about his life and legacy is his widow, Jeannie Schultz, and the director of the Schultz Museum in Santa Rosa, California, Gina Hunsinger. Gina, Jeannie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Jeannie, let's start with you. Since it is that time of year, I got to ask, how did you used to celebrate Thanksgiving with your husband, Charles? 
Well, I remember one when we were in a rented house. It was all of his family, and it was probably the biggest Thanksgiving family thing I've ever experienced. Mostly we had smaller sorts of things. And I remember one of our early Thanksgivings in our new home, he carved the turkey. Jeannie, how did Charles, or Sparky as he was known, how did he come up with the idea for peanuts? I guess that he drew a cartoon called Little Folks. They were panel cartoons and they were just little kid cartoons. One of the principals at Art Instruction School where he worked as a corrector of people's art lessons said, I think you should stick with the little kids. That's what he turned into all the syndicates to see if he could get a contract. Little kids, no parents. Even his early drawings were pretty simple. They got a little more complex, but then they went back to simple, simple, simple. Yeah, that, I think that was the genius part of uh, Peanuts is that no parents, no grown-ups. It was just focused on the kids. Um, Gina, um, you're the director of the Schultz Museum in Santa Rosa, California. Well, what, what do you think made Schultz different from other cartoonists? First of all, he was a genius. Um, he, We could relate to his strip. Like, we could see ourselves as Charlie Brown. You know, our kites stuck in the tree again or the frustration of, you know, something happening. And also, Charles Schultz was the first one to really talk about emotions in the strip. So it changed the cartooning industry with his influence. He was so different than what was on the page when he first started. The other thing that he was different was that his aesthetic, his lines were minimal. He only put what was necessary to tell a story and it just jumped off the page compared to the cartoon strips of the time when he started in 1950. And you know what I like about uh, Peanuts is that being a kid is difficult because, you know, you're not fully formed yet. So you make mistakes, things that would seem like not a big deal to an adult are a really big right. deal to a little kid. Right. Kids are just messy. And I think that was something that really took hold. Yes. I, I feel like we've been listening to so many people talk around the centennial. And one of the cartoonists said, you know, People were trying to sell us things all the time. Like, you're supposed to be happy and you're supposed to do this. And Charles Schultz sort of said it like it was. So people were like, yeah, I get these characters. I feel a part of this. They speak to me. And we have so many people who come into the museum and say, you know, when I was a little kid, I used to run home from school, run into my room, close the door and read those little peanut dollar paperbacks. And that was comforting to them. They just wanted to go home and suck their thumbs and read Peanuts. Now, I want to play another clip from a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. Now, in this scene, Sally sees her big brother, Charlie, looking sad at the mailbox and asks him what's the matter. Holidays always depress me. I know what you mean. I went down to buy a turkey tree. And all they have are things for Christmas. For Christmas already? Anyway, why should I give thanks on Thanksgiving? What have I got to be thankful for? It's been 49 years since that first uh, special aired, and listening to it now, I mean, it just it just sounds a lot simpler than a lot of the TV shows and streaming shows that are out there today. Uh, Jeannie, why do you think its appeal has stuck around for so long? I always say that Sparky expressed the human condition. He wrote about real emotions that kids are feeling. And it's always delivered with a little bit of humor. 
anybody can read that strip in four seconds and get comfort from it because it talks about humanity. Gina, how would you define his legacy? Pervasive. Uh, I feel like he has influenced the world, you know, just from like security blanket in the dictionary to we have people from all over the world come and visit and they love peanuts. Jeannie, how come no one has taken over the Peanuts comic strip after Charles's death? Or, or is that something that maybe no one would want to have that job to fill those massive shoes? Well, that may be true, although I suspect there were people who would have liked to try. But Sparky, in his contract, said when he stopped drawing it, the strip would stop. What people see today are reruns. So you're seeing the same comic strips. And what amazes me is that it's still funny. You still want to read it right now. Snoopy's going to Needles or somewhere to find Spike. And it's just funny. Jeannie, it sounds like you still read the comic. Oh, I do. <laughs> I actually still read the newspapers. <laughs> I get a lot of fun out of looking through those when I do. Gina, when people visit uh, the Schultz Museum, what, what do they tell you is the reason why they come? What, why, why do you think people still want to have peanuts in their lives? The thing that people say the most to me is that they actually feel like there's some sort of comfort that they get from coming back to something that takes them back in time and it still makes them laugh. And I, I feel like they just want to come for a little comfort and happiness. That's Gina Hunsinger, the director of the Schultz Museum in Santa Rosa, California, and also Jeannie Schultz, the wife of Charles Schultz. Uh, Jeannie and Gina, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Abe. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition as President Biden spends the Thanksgiving weekend on Nantucket, a look at how he may make his decision on whether to run for re-election in 2024. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. On stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. NATO's Secretary General is reaffirming the alliance's commitment to help Ukraine defend itself from Russian attacks. Jens Stoltenberg told reporters in Brussels today NATO will support Ukraine for as long as it takes. Russian airstrikes have left millions of Ukrainians without power, water, and heat. This is Black Friday, the traditional start to the holiday shopping season in the U.S., the National Retail Federation estimates the number of shoppers through Cyber Monday will be up about 5 percent compared to last year. Home sales in the U.S. fell in October for the ninth consecutive month amid rising mortgage rates. NPR's Chris Arnold has more. Rising mortgage rates are what's to blame. The biggest jump in rates in 40 years is just pricing out millions of Americans. Home sales are going down, down, down because mortgage rates are going up, up, and up. That's Lawrence Yoon with the National Association of Realtors. The latest sales data is from October. Since then, though, mortgage rates have been falling a bit, and Yoon hopes that they fall more. Meanwhile, home prices haven't fallen much because we still have housing shortages in many places nationwide. Yoon says prices are still up 7% from a year ago and up 40% from 2019. Chris Arnold, NPR News. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Cranberries are one of the state's biggest crops, and you may have enjoyed some of it at Thanksgiving dinner yesterday. But as WBUR's John Bender reports, the staple crop is not immune to the effects of climate change. Historically, Massachusetts has ideal temperatures and growing season for cranberries. But that's changing, according to Jim Kane, head of Wareham-based cranberry grower A.D. Makepeace, which supplies to Ocean Spray. No one understands the reality of climate change better than the farmers who are out on their bog, in our case, every day. The falls are lasting longer. We're not getting the cool evenings that we need. And the winters are lasting longer into March. Kane adds that this year's drought had little impact on his crop, due in part to the use of renovated bogs, which require less water. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. On Beacon Hill, some state lawmakers are moving to remove oversight of the MBTA from the Department of Public Utilities. A federal report on safety failures at the T earlier this year blamed the DPU for being ineffective as an oversight agency. Lawmakers crafting a bill tell the Boston Herald they're trying to decide whether to push for an existing state agency to oversee the T or whether there should be a new one. It's unclear if the move has any support from Governor-elect Maura Healey. Energy officials are worried trying to make all buildings in Cambridge electric by the end of 2035 is not feasible. The city council wants to update building ordinances that would require structures to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by that year. Eversource tells the Boston Business Journal the city would need to update infrastructure much faster than normal to meet that deadline. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. In sports, Patriots lost a close game last night in Minneapolis. They fell to the Vikings 33-26. Pats will host the Buffalo Bills next Thursday. This afternoon at the Garden, the Bruins skate with the Carolina Hurricanes. And tonight at the Garden, Celtics against the Sacramento Kings. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy today. Rain around this morning and early afternoon with highs in the low 50s and gusty winds. Clearing skies tonight, temperatures dropping to the mid-30s. Tomorrow should be mostly sunny and cooler, highs back in the upper 40s. And Sunday, mostly cloudy with rain in the afternoon, highs in the upper 50s. Right now, 48 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI, to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. Lots of families had some big conversations over the dinner table at Thanksgiving last night. Some easy, some hard, some involving major life decisions, such as whether to run for a second term as president. We're joined now by NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith, who is reporting on President Biden's deliberations about whether to run for re-election in 2024. Good morning, Tam. All right, so what do we know about where President Biden is in his decision process? 
We know that Biden has said repeatedly that he does plan to run for re-election, but he has also said that he's a big believer in fate. And although he isn't explicit about this part, he did just turn 80 this past weekend, making him the first octogenarian president of the United States. Until Biden actually files the paperwork, the decision to run isn't really final. He said recently that he would be talking to his family about it. And my guess is it'd be early next year we make that judgment. Anita Dunn, who is a longtime advisor to Biden and is also a top White House official, was asked about it at an event recently put on by the publication Axios. His decision to run in 2020 came after a family meeting that was actually, as he tells it, called by his grandchildren. Pops, got to have this conversation. The family is going to be deeply involved in whatever decision he reaches because that's who he is. Now, we know the families gathered this week. Are, are they in Nantucket making the decision as we speak? We have no idea. No. Uh, as Biden's press secretary said uh, repeatedly this week, these are private conversations. And even if a decision is made this week, or maybe it'll be over Christmas, it's not like a formal announcement would come immediately. I, I think back to when then President Obama made his announcement for the 2012 election, he didn't announce his reelection until around April of 2011. And that was even though there was really no question about whether he would run. In that Axios interview, Dunn said preparations are already underway, though. We are engaged in some planning for the simple reason that if we weren't engaged in planning in November of this year, we should be in the political malpractice hall of fame. When Donald Trump announced that he was going to run in 2024, I think everyone did a collective look toward D.C. to see exactly what President Biden was planning on doing. Well, uh, he has said that he doesn't feel any hurry one way or another, regardless of what Trump does. And Trump's announcement is very early by historical standards, if not by his own standards. And one factor that the White House must be weighing here and, and Biden's advisors is that there are a lot of polls that show Democrats are not that excited about him running again. When I was out interviewing voters last month, many of them brought up concerns about Biden's age unprompted. They said that they like him, that he doesn't get the credit he deserves. And then I'd say, oh, well, then do you want him to run again? And there would often just be these painfully long pauses and a lot of ums and ahs. But I have to say, it doesn't look like there's another Democrat waiting in the wings ready to challenge him. Democrats did really well in the midterms, or at least it wasn't the red wave that many people were expecting. And that's boosted the White House's confidence about Biden's political fortunes. And since then, a long list of Democrats with thinly veiled political ambitions have come out and said that if Biden runs, they will support him. Now, Biden just really has to answer the question of if he's going to run. NPR White House correspondent Tamara Keith. Tamara, thanks. You're welcome. In her latest look at folks living in multi-generational households, NPR's Claire Murashima brings us the story of a woman in Healdsburg, California, who has questioned what it means to be living with her mom as a 34-year-old. Lauren Algren is a swim instructor. She's also a writer and a full-time caregiver to her mom. My mom used to semi-joke when we were younger that once she got older, she's like, just take my license away. And I thought of that when we did have to like take her car away from her. 
she grappled with societal expectations around living at home when her mom developed early onset Alzheimer's. At first, it was, there was kind of like a little bit of shame or like, I guess, I kind of felt weird about being in my 30s and living back at home. Um, it's not what I had envisioned for myself. And then I definitely didn't expect my mom to get um, ill so early on in her um, in her later years. So um, that, that really didn't like sit well with me. Before becoming a caregiver, Lauren used to go on weekly hikes and travel. One day, she wants kids, but she doesn't have a partner, nor does she have time to date. I just feel like a, a single mom, and I really miss all the other aspects of my life. She's dealing with something else as well. It's also really hard to grieve someone when they are alive. Um, it's such a drawn-out process with Alzheimer's. She's asked her two siblings for help, but... At this point, even though I've asked for help many times, it just kind of like always ends up being on my plate anyway, so I just take charge. For the last couple of years, she's had to evacuate because of the Northern California wildfires. She also lives with the uncertainty of whether or not she'll be able to even afford more advanced care for her mom one day. But Lauren says one of the toughest things is the isolation. She's been vocal with family and friends, but it's all a growing burden. This has been ongoing for five years now, and I'm tired of talking about the same thing. Lauren says the one silver lining of the pandemic is that she was able to save money. For the most part, she could still work, but wasn't spending very much. Before the pandemic, though, she says they were living paycheck to paycheck. My mom is low income and her social security doesn't even cover half her mortgage, so I have to cover everything else. She's in the process of selling the house they live in, and once they sell it, Lauren hopes there will be enough money to move her mom into a memory care facility. As it is, she spends a lot of money on making sure someone is always looking after her. So in order to go to work, I have to hire a caregiver to hang out with her, which is great. She loves it, but um, it's definitely expensive. Lauren has developed strategies to make it work, like starting each day with the same ritual. Hi. Good morning. I make a point of spending every morning waking up and then going into her room to cuddle say? her and the dog. Um, it's just so we can start the morning off on like a good note. How come you're hanging off the bed here? Oh, the dogs took your spot. Here. She's making Sweetie. the most of their time together before someone else becomes her mom's primary caregiver. And maybe then she'll find the time to go on those hikes and start thinking about building a family of her own, the life she thought she'd be living at 34. Claire Murashima, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on Morning Edition, trying to address both the problems of growing debt and severe climate effects plaguing low-income countries at the same time. Then, next hour, what voters' response to abortion questions says about the issue 
going forward. Remember, take WBUR with you today. If you're doing some shopping, going for a hike, or just enjoying a lazy day, you can listen to us on the WBUR mobile app. In the forecast, it will be mostly cloudy skies today. Temperatures in the lower 50s with scattered showers around this morning and gusty winds. Clouds move out overnight, lows dropping to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, highs in the upper 40s. Sunday, cloudy with more rain likely later in the day, upper 50s. And Monday should be more sunshine highs in the mid-50s. Right now, 48 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ceres, a nonprofit working to build a just, sustainable future for people and the planet. This Giving Tuesday considers supporting Ceres. Learn more and have your donation matched at CERES.org slash WBUR. Now business news. The annual Shop the Block Holiday Market returns to Nubian Square, Boston tomorrow. Tomorrow is also dubbed Small Business Saturday. The market features more than 50 small businesses that sell a variety of handcrafted goods. Founder Kai Grant says Shop the Block is the most diverse holiday market in New England. This has been a safe haven for melanated businesses that really need support systems to help them to grow their customer base and for the community to come and gather and to come and support. The Shop the Block market will run each Saturday through December 24th. The Wachusett's Mountain Ski Resort is getting some updates. Owners tell the Telegram and Gazette they'll be replacing one of the quad lifts with a six-seater. Ahead of this season, they also added new buses to go between the lodge and satellite parking lots. This is WBUR. The time is 7.45. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. The climate crisis has been hitting low-income countries especially hard. We heard that throughout the UN climate summit in Egypt that just wrapped. These governments are also facing swelling debt as interest rates rise around the globe. Could blue bonds solve both problems at once? Waylon Wong and Darian Woods from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, explain. Last month, the United Nations identified 54 countries in need of urgent debt relief. The UN said about half of those countries are also some of the most climate-vulnerable nations in the world. These countries don't have the money to service their debt and invest in climate-related infrastructure. Danielle Munivar is an economic affairs officer at the UN Conference on Trade and Development. Climate change not only is affecting negatively the income of countries, but it's also imposing additional costs as a result of extreme climate events. Because of these linkages, the climate crisis, it's also making the debt crisis worse. The Nature Conservancy wanted to tackle the climate and debt problems together. So they turned to something called a debt for nature swap. Basically, they would help governments swap old debt for new debt with lower interest payments. This debt conversion would then free up money for conservation efforts. These 
debt-for-nature swaps were briefly in vogue in the late 1980s and early 1990s after the Latin American debt crisis. Then environmental groups helped countries like Bolivia and Ecuador get debt relief in exchange for conservation commitments. The Nature Conservancy revived the debt-for-nature swap in 2016 with a deal in the Seychelles. It did another swap in Belize last year and then a $150 million deal in Barbados this year. The deals all involve something called blue bonds because the countries promise to protect at least 30% of their ocean areas. And so here's how the Barbados debt swap worked. First, the government contacted investors holding the old debt, and they offered to buy back some of those bonds. Slav Gutchev heads the sustainable debt team at the Nature Conservancy. Just like the homeowner refinancing their house, if you go to your current bank and say, hey, I want to pay you back, the bank will say, wonderful, where's the cash? Show me the money. And that's where the Nature Conservancy comes in. They paired up with Wall Street Banks and another group, which was the Inter-American Development Bank, and they sold new bonds to investors called the blue bonds. And the proceeds of these blue bonds were then used to cash out the old bondholders. Now Barbados is on the hook for this new debt, but the new debt has much better terms. The Nature Conservancy and the Inter-American Development Bank also took a risk. They agreed to guarantee the debt, stepping in if Barbados can't make the payments. All told, the debt swap generated $50 million in savings for Barbados. This is the money that the country is using for large-scale, long-term projects to protect its oceans. Slav at the Nature Conservancy acknowledges that debt swaps are just one tool meant to complement traditional philanthropy, like grants and donations. But he said the enormity of the climate crisis means financial markets have to get involved in fixing it. And so these debt swaps are designed to attract investors of all kinds. Which side are you appealing to? Kind of their profit-seeking side or their climate conscience? Ideally, it's both, right? But of course, we love the fact that people see these instruments as aligned with their green investment targets. And we want to see more teeth to those targets. Waylon Wong. Darian Woods, NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, the coming Netflix adaptation of the 1985 novel White Noise that's due out next month. The time We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. I'm Peter O'Dowd. A few months ago, the housing market was red hot. Now, the boom is over. When the headlines catch on to something like that, and that's all buyers are hearing, is interest rates have gone up, there's a bubble coming, then they all get scared and back off. How soaring interest rates have put the brakes on housing, next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Remember, if you're heading out early this early in the morning, a reminder today, the T is on a weekday schedule, but the commuter rail is running a weekend schedule. There is no MBTA ferry service as well. 
Forecast says it should be mostly cloudy skies today with rain likely, especially the first half of the day. Highs in the mid-50s. Clearing skies tonight, lows dropping to the mid-30s. Tomorrow should be all sunshine, temperatures in the upper 40s. Sunday, cloudy skies with rain moving in in the afternoon, highs in the upper 50s. And Monday, mostly sunny skies, highs in the mid-50s. Remember, if you're looking for something to listen to while you're eating leftovers today or you're on a long drive, you can always check out WBUR on our mobile app. Or you can visit WBUR.org for a list of seven of our podcasts worth a listen. That includes cooking advice from here and now resident chef Kathy Gunst and a seat at the Friendsgiving table with some local celebrity chefs and the Radio Boston team. Check it all out at WBUR.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. One of the acclaimed novels of the last century is a movie in this century. The novel is White Noise by Don DeLillo. A college professor moves about campus, teaching class, going home to his family. It's an ordinary Midwestern life in which filmmaker Noah Baumbach perceives something eerie. There's this sort of otherness, this other reality that's like floating above the ground. We all recognize when we have those times in our lives when we acknowledge that the world feels very strange to us. It's like things are familiar and not familiar. You mean basically the way we've all felt for the last several years? Yes, and particularly the last few years, I think. In the movie White Noise, Professor Jack Gladney is played by Adam Driver. He lives an ivory tower life, trying to figure out the deep meaning of ordinary events in conversation with his academic friend, played by Don Cheadle. The supermarket is a waiting place. It recharges us spiritually. It's a gateway. Look how bright, look how full of psychic data, waves and radiation. All the letters and numbers are here, all the colors of the spectrum, all the voices and sounds, all the code words and ceremonial phrases. We just have to know how to decipher it. Everything around Gladney seems prosperous and orderly until a sudden event causes panic, conspiracy theories, loss of trust in authority. Gladney slowly becomes aware of secrets in his own family. His wife is played by Greta Gerwig, who's the director's partner in real life. The story is personal for Noah Baumbach in other ways. He first read the novel White Noise early in life. My father actually recommended it to me. Uh, I read it also in high school. It had a big effect on me at the time, but I hadn't reread it, and I was rereading it somewhat arbitrarily at the end of 2019 into the beginning of 2020, and I kept stopping and reading it aloud to Greta or to anybody who would listen and just saying, I can't believe how much this book speaks to all time. But uh, I mean, it's certainly anything in the modern world. So many things to follow up on there. First, you said your father gave it to you. Mm -hmm. Wasn't your father a college professor? He was, and a writer, and a novelist, and short story writer. But yeah, he taught at Brooklyn College. He passed away in 2019. So I think also returning to the book was a kind of way of revisiting times with him and conversations we'd had and books we'd loved. And I also, when I was writing it, I had that those uncanny thoughts of r realizing my father was the age of Jack Gladney in the book, when the book came out in 1985, he was 52. Mm. And then now I was that age <laughs> reading it now. And so that certainly had a, an effect on me. When I think about Jack's character, I'm recalling the moment when I first read this novel that I come across a line where he says, uh, I am a professor of Hitler studies. And I, maybe that's the moment when I realized there's this kind of dark humor throughout the, the whole setup. 
Right. Well, I think that's a, a great example of what the tone of the novel and, and the movie as well, which is it's both credible and not credible. And it also feels slightly absurd at the same time. Gladney, the college professor, shows his students films of crowds listening to Hitler and inadvertently reveals his own preoccupation with death. These crowds were assembled in the name of death. They were there to attend tributes to the dead. But not the already dead. The future dead. Death begins to seem real for the characters instead of academic when a train crash produces a toxic cloud near the college town. The characters scan the media, unsure what to believe. The radio calls it a feathery plume, but it's not a plume. That's what Dad said. What is it? It's like a shapeless growing thing, a dark black breathing thing of smoke. Why do they call it a plume? What feels very current to you about this film that is set in the 1980s? That book, if you read it after any major event in this country over the last whatever years, it would feel like it was written for that moment. I think if we, if I'd reread it after 9/11, after Trump was elected, after I mean, when, I mean, really any kind of major moment, it's it, there's something about it. There's so many moments that do make you think of the pandemic, like for example, the medical advice over the radio in the media about what symptoms to look for changes daily, which is a thing we've all experienced now. I'm also thinking of a moment when the cloud is approaching the town and Jack Gladney, this college professor, has a line about why the cloud is not going to come for them. It's called niadine derivative or niadine D. We saw it in a movie in school on toxic waste. What is the cause? The movie wasn't sure what it does to humans. Mainly it was rats growing urgent lumps. But that's what the movie said. What does the radio say? Skin irritation and sweaty palms. The kids are all very much uh, aware of the urgency of the situation. And Babette is kind of toggling between the children and Jack. And Jack is, is living in absolute denial. But there's even a moment where he essentially says social inequality will protect us. Right, he does. He said, you never see a college professor rowing a boat you know, down his street. <laughs> yes. And that, that, <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm laughing, but it's dark. But he's essentially saying because the world is unfair, poor people and people who are not like us, the disadvantaged are the ones who are put in the way of catastrophes like this. There's the great line that it's from the book that's also in the movie, which is um, family is the cradle of the world's misinformation. The children are that throughout. They're sort of full of facts, which are either true, half true, or not true at all. And uh, that was even my direction to the kids. I said, you're like a radio that was turned on at the beginning of the movie, and then you're just on for the whole time. So even, <laughs> even when you're off camera, just imagine you're still having this conversation. And they embrace that wonderfully. And I saw the family in this movie as a kind of microcosm of the culture at large, which is how we both contribute and also collaborate in false information. This story opens it up to the culture at large. I mean, this notion of fake news that we've been living uh, with for the last few years. Well, Noah Baumbach, thank you very much for taking the time. I really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, thank you. It was fun. The movie, based on the novel by Don DeLillo, is White Noise. Nancy, Sanka. Sanka, Nancy. What if death is nothing but sound? You hear it forever. 
sound all around. Uniform, white. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. And this is WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiar's forecast says it'll be mostly cloudy with a chance of showers this morning. Temperatures in the mid-50s right now. 48 degrees in Boston. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. If WBUR is indispensable in your daily life, make it a priority in your year-end giving. A monthly gift will keep you grounded in facts and new ideas. As our thanks, get a year of The New Yorker on your digital device and in your mailbox at a 40% savings. It's a limited-time offer, so get in on it while you can at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The holiday shopping season unofficially gets underway this Black Friday with inflation a major factor for both consumers and businesses. It's Friday, November 25th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up, why experts expect a staring contest between consumers and businesses early this holiday season. Consumers want better price, so they are sitting on the side, so it's going to really boil down to the consumers blink first or do the retailers blink first. Also this hour, how both sides will move forward with messaging on abortion after this year's mixed results on that matter in the midterms. There are millions of people who voted yes for a referendum to codify Roe and then went and voted for pro-life conservative Republican candidates. And how a South Carolina Marine Corps installation is becoming a model for other bases on how to respond to climate change. Forecast is cloudy with showers today, highs in the low 50s. It's 801. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. With the midterm elections mostly over, topic A for Democrats is who will be the party standard bearer in 2024? At age 80, President Joe Biden has a big formal decision to make and says Biden advisor Anita Dunn, one that the president's family will be deeply involved in. His decision to run in 2020 came after a family meeting that was actually, as he tells it, called by his grandchildren, Pops. Got to have this conversation. NPR's Tamara Keith has more. We know that Biden has said repeatedly that he does plan to run for re-election, but he has also said that he's a big believer in fate. And although he isn't explicit about this part, he did just turn 80 this past weekend, making him the first octogenarian president of the United States. NPR's Tamara Keith. The Biden family is spending Thanksgiving in Nantucket. And yesterday, after visiting local firefighters on the Massachusetts island, the president spoke to reporters about a recent wave of U.S. gun violence. Biden said it was, in his words, ridiculous that red flag laws are not being enforced. And the president said he would continue to try to take assault weapons off the streets. Officials in Ukraine say they are working to restore power in much of the country following Wednesday's series of Russian airstrikes. The BBC's James Waterhouse says millions of people across Ukraine are without power, water and heat. It was like emerging from a black hole. There is no power whatsoever. Shops are forced to close. 
People are completely reliant on gas stoves or a neighbour with a gas stove. There is no phone signal, there is no internet, and this is a very deliberate tactic by the Russians. Russia is trying to pressure every Ukrainian into conceding this war, into lessening their appetite to put up a fight. The BBC's James Waterhouse reporting. In Israel, incoming Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has named a polarizing far-right politician the country's next minister of national security. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv. Netanyahu has reached his first deal with a political party as he continues to hold talks to build a new governing coalition. He's agreed to make Itamar Ben-Gvir the Minister of National Security with a seat in Israel's security cabinet. That's a new expanded ministerial role that puts Ben-Gvir in charge of both the Israeli police and the paramilitary border police force, which polices Palestinians in the occupied West Bank. Ben-Gvir is one of Israel's most provocative far-right figures, calling for harsher policing of Palestinians. Outgoing Defense Minister Benny Gantz accused Netanyahu of giving Ben-Gvir a, quote, private army and warned of, quote, security chaos. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Dow Futures up 72. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. Stores in Massachusetts expect they'll take in 10% more revenue this holiday shopping season than last year. That's according to a survey from the Retailers Association of Massachusetts. More now from WBUR's Jonathan Kane. The forecast for a 10% jump in sales would outpace the typical year-over-year increase of 4%. But Association President John Hurst says the nearly 8% inflation rate will limit the impact of the additional money coming into the cash register. The real question here is, you know, how much of that will be actual increased sales and how much of it is, frankly, uh, translates into a higher cost uh, for the seller. Hearst says retailers are paying more for inventory, energy, wages, and rent. But he says they can't afford to pass all those added costs onto consumers, so profit margins will be smaller. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jonathan Kane. Massachusetts could see up to $200 million in new federal spending if Congress is able to pass a budget next month. An analysis by the Boston Globe finds those earmarks include money for a new seawall in Hull, for childcare in Stoneham and Wakefield, and money for the New England Aquarium. Hundreds of Worcester residents are without homes after a fire in a high-rise building yesterday morning. Firefighters quickly put out the blaze and no one was hurt. The Worcester Fire Department says the building's electrical system was extremely damaged and that forced residents to be relocated. There is no timeline for when people may be able to return. Boston Ballet's performance of The Nutcracker opens today. The classic show kicks off the holiday season in the city. WBUR's Samantha Kutsia has more. The ballet is set to the traditional score by Tchaikovsky, and in recent years, the choreography hasn't changed much either. Miko Nissanen is the artistic director of the Boston Ballet. He says when he came into that position years ago, he gave the show a revamp. But since then, he's kept it the same. It's not like a variety show that you tweak and tweak and tweak. It's a classical standard, and we try to make it really exciting and full of bubbles and uh, fantastic dancing. The Nutcracker runs through the end of this year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Samantha Kutsia. The time is 8.06.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. In sports, Patriots couldn't hold on to a fourth-quarter lead last night in Minneapolis. They lost to the Vikings 33-26. to Pats will play again next Thursday at home against the Bills. This afternoon at the Garden, Bruins take on the Carolina Hurricanes. Then tonight also at the Garden, Celtics play the Sacramento Kings. And at the Men's World Cup this afternoon, Team USA takes on England. New England Revolution will host a watch party over at Royale Boston, the club in the theater district. Cahal Conlon with the Revs says he expects an excited crowd. You know, it's been this build and you have this exciting young team and it's the youngest team in the tournament, youngest roster players in the tournament. But now you're throwing against England and to test yourself against them at the World Cup is, is incredible. And the buzz and excitement around this game in particular is really special. Doors open for the watch party today at one o'clock. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy today. Showers likely, also a chance for some minor flooding along the coast in Boston, the North Shore and the Cape and Islands. Highs today in the lower 50s. Clearing skies tonight, temperatures in the mid-30s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, highs around 50 degrees and partly sunny with a chance for afternoon rain on Sunday. Highs in the mid to upper 50s. Right now, 49 degrees in Boston at 8.08. WBUR supporters include Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. Like millions of people in the United States, Claire Babineau Fontenot knows what it's like to need help from a food bank. I found myself in law school, no money for gas in my little beat up Toyota Tercel hatchback and no money to eat. So I was desperate and I turned to the local Salvation Army. I will never forget that place as long as I live. It's on Airline Highway in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I remember what it felt like to need to go there. I was embarrassed. I had my head down. I was preparing myself, stealing myself for all of the probing questions I was about to hear when I got there. And I was really ashamed. But when she walked in, she was treated with kindness and respect. The lady who did the intake, she didn't ask me any probing questions. All she wanted to know was, how could she help me? She gave me emergency food stamps that day, and she told me, if you need any more, baby, you know where to come. She never had to go back. But I will never forget that I had to go that time. I'll never forget how I was treated when I went. And I will work hard to make certain that every single person who finds themselves him, her, their selves, in that type of circumstance. I want them to have the type of experience that I had. Babineau Fontenot is now the CEO of Feeding America, a nationwide network of food banks and food pantries. And she told me more and more people in the United States are finding themselves in those same circumstances this Thanksgiving. I asked Babineau Fontenot how many people in the U.S. are currently food insecure. Last estimates that were published reported 53 million people Unfortunately, we believe that number is greater. The 53 million number reflected a decline that we saw year over year from 2020 to 2021. 
but our members are reporting increases that sometimes are actually higher rates of demand than they saw even in 2020. And food insecurity, Claire, what does that mean exactly? Now, the USDA has come up with this term and they conduct surveys and ask very specific questions. And at its core, it's really asking, do you know where your next meal is coming from? What impact has inflation had on people's need for help from food banks? That is exactly what we believe is the reason for the spike. We were relieved that we were starting to see decreases in those lines. And then we started noticing that they were going up. And at that time, inflation was really heating up. We also had certain programs that were helping families that were sunsetting, COVID relief that was sunsetting. And when those things started happening altogether, we saw significant increases in demand. And and those increases have sustained themselves for several months now. For many of our members, they have never in their history seen more demand than we have right now. And I'd like to unpack what inflation means, not just for people who are coming to us in need of resources, but also for us as we're trying to provide those resources. We've seen a decrease in donations year over year. I think it's because the American public thinks, you know, we've a, we, we've gotten past the biggest hurdles, which unfortunately is not true. So we have decrease in donated food, a decrease in federal commodities that we rely on to help people who come to us as well. So that means that our members have to go out and buy more food. So they're buying more food at a time when food costs a lot more money. So all of those tensions are really causing some significant strains on our ability to be helpful. I think the pandemic helped people to see that this is happening here. And it was happening before the pandemic, by the way. We we were serving around 40 million people before the pandemic started. What's hard, I think, is knowing that, as I say, it's like the game isn't over, but people are leaving the field. And there are tens of millions of people who still need help. When it comes to the people that use food banks, um, what are some misconceptions about those people that, that listeners might have? One of the biggest ones I find is somehow people think that they don't work and it's simply demonstrably not true. So if I could break down whom it is that comes to us in need of help, as a rule, what we're talking about, children, a huge portion of those who are counting on us in the work that we do would be kids the elderly, people with disabilities, so people who do not have the wherewithal to be in the workforce, rely on us to help fill in the gaps. And then people with at least one job. Some of the people who are coming to us in need of resources, not only do they have one job, some of them have more than one job. Someone might be living right next door to someone who is dealing with this and never know about it because one, it's something that people maybe are ashamed of. And number two, you would think, well, where I live, there's no way anyone could be dealing with food insecurity. That's exactly right. Wherever it is that you live across this country, hunger is there. You just don't always know where it is, but it's always around us. In the richest, most ostensibly prosperous counties, there are people living with hunger. And again, we, there are things we can do about it, but it is true. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us. That's Claire Babineau-Fontenot, CEO of Feeding America, a nationwide network of food banks and food pantries. Claire, thanks. Thank you so much for having me.
If history is anything to go by, when the president's approval rating is below 50 percent, their party, on average, loses 43 House seats in midterm elections. This year, Democrats lost a fraction of that. In a post-Roe political landscape, both parties are working to figure out how big a part abortion played in the midterm outcomes. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben reports. Ahead of the midterms, pollsters and strategists and, yes, journalists, were obsessed with voters' top issues. But then people rarely vote with a single issue in mind, and that makes it hard to know how much abortion swayed the midterms. But there are a few things we can say. One is that the Roe overturn seems to have immediately motivated women, says Democratic strategist Tom Bonnier, CEO of Target Smart. Almost everywhere what you saw was a pretty significant surge in gender gap in the, you know, two to four weeks after Dobbs. And then, you know, we saw an increase, but not, you know, not not as pronounced after that. Bonnier and other strategists will be watching for more data to answer which women were fired up, as well as how much abortion motivated men. A second takeaway, pro-choice policies in isolation did well. Five abortion-related ballot measures all came out in favor of abortion rights, even in red states like Kentucky and Montana. And yet, says Democratic strategist Rachel Bittekoffer, There are millions of people who voted yes for a referendum to codify Roe or whatever, right? And then went and voted for pro-life conservative Republican candidates. Furthermore, plenty of politicians who famously favor restricting abortion easily won. For example, Republican governors Greg Abbott in Texas and Ron DeSantis in Florida. Why is that? Bittekoffer thinks it's about ineffective communication by abortion rights supporters. You want to make sure people understand the, this man is the guy who's signing into law the bill to steal your rights. The problem so far has been breaking voters' connections to party identity. People like heuristics. They like something that can tell them what to do without any mental investment. And that's why the party label is so incredibly powerful. Still, that's one Democratic take. Marjorie Dannenfelser is president of SBA Pro-Life America. She sees wins by Abbott and DeSantis as proof of their political power. The one thing that you have in an election on the pro-life side, and we've always had, is the candidate, the human representation of, of the argument on the debate stage. The reason that the governors are winning well, who have been ambitious for life, is that they've been articulating their position. They have the bully pulpit of the governorships. One takeaway that's harder to quantify is what kind of messaging works. For Dan and Felser, it's clear that Republicans failed and that Democrats found a winning strategy. They ended up uh, with a position that we need to label Republicans as for abortion bans generally and do not go into the specifics of what a Republican is for or a pro-life candidate is for. Multiple Democratic strategists agree that staying away from gestational limits was smart, though they frame it differently. Here's Ana Lilia Mejia, co-director of the Progressive Center for Popular Democracy. I think it was not only smart, but right of them to say there isn't some line, there isn't some like countdown clock in which you go from being a full autonomous human being to property of the state. That leaves open the question of what the party see as their best paths going forward. To Republican pollster Whit Ayers, his party needs to abandon the tightest abortion measures. We have a number of laws that have been passed by Republican legislatures that are far from the mainstream, uh, that include no exceptions, for example, for, for rape or incest. And that's the very definition of outside the mainstream. 
The question is what Republicans do with that information. In the midterms, many Republican candidates avoided the topic of abortion. To Dannenfelser, that was a mistake. One thing you cannot do is expect to be a successful primary Republican candidate who says that it's a state's issue. And I don't expect to ever promote or sign a federal 15-week or heartbeat protection. Rebecca Katz, senior advisor for John Fetterman's Senate campaign, likewise thinks her party needs to not just message but pass abortion rights legislation. I don't think that folks should just be high-fiving because we want to cycle at, at, with such a devastating impact, right? Like, there is a lot of work to be done. Both sides will be plowing ahead, in other words, just with new information about who might support them and how. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News. A bipartisan majority of U.S. senators could be on the cusp of approving historic legislation protecting same-sex marriage. More than 70 percent of Americans say they're in favor of it, and that's a sharp departure from just over a decade ago when even high-profile Democrats hesitated to express their support. A sea change in attitudes later today on All Things Considered. Listen wherever you happen to be, on your phone, your radio, or your smart speaker. Just ask for your member station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on Morning Edition, the victory for trans rights in South Korea as the country's Supreme Court rules transgender people have the right to change their legal sex status. Plus, this week's story core about two childhood friends from Hong Kong who were separated in their youth and eventually reunited as adults in the U.S. That's all coming up here on WBUR. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, performing Handel's Messiah with its Hallelujah Chorus tonight through Sunday at Symphony Hall. HandelandHaydn.org. Across North America every year, migratory monarch butterflies travel thousands of miles. Imagine the fact that these butterflies migrate to Mexico. How does it something that weighs about half a gram manage to do what you can't do? The monarch butterfly is now endangered, but they can be saved. Find out how. On Point, this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy today. Showers, especially the first half of the day. Highs in the low 50s. Clear skies tonight, lows in the mid-30s and mostly sunny tomorrow, highs in the upper 40s. Right now, 49 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages 3 and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from Morgan Stanley, with their podcast, Thoughts on the Market, offering concise takes on current events and their implications for financial markets. Three minutes an episode, five times a week. Thoughts on the Market. And from listeners like you who donate, to this NPR station.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. South Korea has been a democracy for more than three decades. Now, despite this, some minorities, including sexual minorities, are still battling for basic rights. From Seoul, NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports on a small but important legal victory for the country's transgender population. South Korea's Supreme Court ruled Thursday that transgender people cannot be denied the right to have their legal sex status changed solely on the grounds that they have children who are minors. The ruling was in response to a 2019 case of a woman whose bid to change her legal gender status was denied by a family court and an appellate court because she had underage children. Kim Kyo-wool is the head of the Seoul-based civic group Transgender Liberation Front. I can't say the ruling is perfect, but the judge's opinions made me think that the court is at least aware of the difficulties that transgender people experience. The court's ruling applies only to single transgender parents with children who are minors, not those who are married with children. Kim also points out that South Korea has no law on legal gender recognition, and the decision is often left to the discretion of court judges. The ruling, though, says transgender people have the right to have their gender identities legally recognized. It's part of their constitutionally guaranteed right to pursue happiness. The ruling adds that a legal change of sex status is just a piece of paper. It doesn't fundamentally change parents' relationship with their children. It also suggested that by allowing legal gender recognition, it can lead to a more stable family life. Tom Rainey-Smith is a gender rights campaigner with Amnesty International Korea. He says his group has called on South Korean authorities to drop abusive requirements for legal gender recognition. When an individual is considering applying for legal gender recognition, you have to consider the fact that you may undergo forced sterilization. You may be forced to undergo surgery you do not want. Kim Kyo-wool notes that South Korea has highly regarded national health insurance, but it doesn't pay for sex reassignment surgery or related medical care. Kim says it can be hard for transgender people to come up with that money themselves. Because their legal gender doesn't match with their perceived gender, they find it hard to get decent jobs. So we need an anti-discrimination law that prohibits discrimination based on appearance. Civil society has pushed for an anti-discrimination law for more than a decade. But conservative politicians and religious groups have successfully opposed the law's passage. Kim Kyo-wool says that while many obstacles remain, the ruling gives her hope that South Korea is making slow but steady progress. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Seoul. It's Friday. Time for StoryCorps. Today, a story about friendship. Pak Yan and Jo Chan were born in Hong Kong and inseparable as kids. They learned to ride bikes together and walked each other to school every day. But in the sixth grade, Joe's family moved to the U.S., leaving Pack wondering what became of his best friend. I vividly remember that night you left. Uh, I saw the uh, ship in the harbor. And I remember when a ship is moving out, you got a roll of paper, streamer, streamer, and you throw it to me, I hold it in my hand. And we hold the uh, streamer together. And these details is always in my mind. After you left, we sent letters to each other, about one letter per week. Those were the days before email and instant messages. So these are one-page letters that we send by airmail. But then gradually, as time passed, I think uh, we sort of uh, lost contact. 
Actually, I kept every letter you sent to me. And remember, I work in a Christmas tree factory. Yep. I do the packaging. All those artificial Christmas tree, they all ship to America. So I hope, oh, maybe Joe Chen will get one. So what made you decide to look me up? When I was 30 years old, I came to the United States too. I know you are in America, but then there's a big question mark in my mind. Where is Joe Chen? But American is so big. One afternoon, type your name, Yahoo search. I found 108 Joe Chen in America. So did you call every Joe Chen uh, on that list? Yes, I left a lot of message. And then I hope one of the message is you. Yeah, I remember that day real well when I heard the, your voice. I get real excited, so I call you back right away. I was overwhelmed when you called me back. I was just can't believe I finally found you. I was very happy. And since that time, uh, we try to find time at least once a week to have a bike ride, and uh, we'll have dinner together. It's like uh, we just picked up where we left off. Uh, you have less hair, that's about all. <laughs> I think as we get older, I think there's a part of our wisdom is to realize that uh, friendship is one of those things that uh, you cannot put a price tag on. Best friends Joe Chan and Pac Yan, who are both in their 70s. This holiday weekend, NPR and StoryCorps invite you to use the StoryCorps app to interview a loved one as part of the Great Thanksgiving Listen. More info at thegreatlisten.org. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Subaru, whose Share the Love event runs through January 3rd. By year's end, Subaru and the retailers will have donated over $250 million to charity. Learn more at Subaru.com share. And from Morgan Stanley, a proud sponsor of StoryCorps. Morgan Stanley is committed to giving back and to fostering meaningful dialogue among people and communities. More at morganstanley.com. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Coming up on Morning Edition on this Black Friday, how inflation could play a major role in this year's holiday shopping season. Remember, take WBUR with you today if you're doing some shopping, going for a hike, or just enjoying a lazy day. You can listen to us right on the WBUR mobile app. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Downtown Crossing Boston with shopping, theater, fine dining, a holiday marketplace, and more. The magic of the season is here. It's time to celebrate. DowntownBoston.org. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Despite ongoing legal challenges, the Education Department has begun notifying federal student loan borrowers who've been approved for relief under President Biden's debt forgiveness plan. NPR's Anil Oza says the president wants to erase up to $20,000 in debt for millions of borrowers. The Education Department began sending updates this week to borrowers who have been approved for President Biden's debt cancellation plan. The emails, signed by Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, say, quote, We reviewed your application and determined that you are eligible for loan relief. But that relief is currently tied up in a legal battle. A federal judge in Texas vacated the program earlier this month, and in a separate lawsuit, an appeals court issued an injunction against it. In the email sent to borrowers, the department says, we believe strongly that these lawsuits are meritless and the Department of Justice has appealed on our behalf. For now, the department has closed its debt relief application website. Aneloza, NPR News. Britain's foreign secretary is in Ukraine's capital today on an unannounced visit. James Cleverly says the U.K. is giving Kyiv another $60 million worth of military equipment to help Ukraine fend off Russian airstrikes. The package includes radar and other technology targeting Russian drone attacks. That's on top of missiles already promised by Britain. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars in Boston. With electricity prices spiking, City of Boston leaders are reminding residents they can get cheaper power through the city. The Community Choice Electricity Program is one of many municipal aggregation programs in the state. WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports in the new year, people not enrolled in the program will likely be paying twice as much for the electricity they use as people who are enrolled. If you get your electricity through your utilities basic supply program, the cost of power changes twice a year. If you enroll in a municipal aggregation program, it will fluctuate much less often because your city or town has signed a longer-term contract. In Boston's program, the price is fixed until the end of next year, and it's about 45% lower than the proposed Eversource rate for January. Reverend Mariama Whitehammon is Boston's top energy official. Prices are going up all around. And I think the key point we're saying is your electricity bill doesn't have to go up. In fact, it may be able to go in the opposite direction. Residents can enroll in the program on the city's website or by calling 311. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. And if you live in Massachusetts and are worried about affording your energy bills this winter, go to WBUR.org for a story about how you can access assistance in paying those bills. The future of a shelter in Central Square, Cambridge, is in doubt. The Salvation Army runs the 35-bed shelter at the Cambridge Core Community Center. The organization tells Cambridge Day it's turning down a large state grant because by taking it, it would not be able to deny entry to anyone based on their criminal record. That's raised concerns with the daycare also run at the site. The Salvation Army says it's in talks with the city to find money to help keep the shelter open. The state is offering a chance for you to walk off a bit of that Thanksgiving dinner from yesterday with guided hikes at parks around the state. Amy Wilmot is an interpretive coordinator for the Department of Conservation and Recreation. So we encourage folks to, you know, do what they want to do on Black Friday. If you want to go shopping, go shopping. If you want to stay at home and watch football, watch football. But if you want the opportunity to to take the day and get outside, we wanted to be able to offer guided hikes for folks. With showers possible today, Wilmot suggests you come prepared for rain if you plan on attending one of those hikes. It's 834. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season. On stage through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. In sports, Patriots lost to the Vikings 33-26 last night in Minneapolis. New England is now 6-5. and five. Pats will host the Buffalo Bills next Thursday. This afternoon at the Garden, Bruins host the Carolina Hurricanes. And then tonight at the Garden, it is the Celtics and the Sacramento Kings. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy today. Rain around this morning and early afternoon with highs in the low 50s and gusty winds. Clearing skies overnight, temperatures dropping to the mid-30s. Tomorrow should be mostly sunny and cooler, highs back in the upper 40s. And Sunday, mostly cloudy with rain in the afternoon, highs in the upper 50s. Right now, 49 degrees in Boston at 835. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. It is officially the holiday shopping season. It's Black Friday, and this year it has a bit of a shadow hanging over it because inflation is near record highs. So how does this bode for holiday gifts? Well, we have NPR's Alina Seljuk here for an update. All right, let's talk inflation. How is it changing up the way people shop? It is by far the number one issue people bring up. Retailers themselves, actually, like Target and Kohl's, have said that they are seeing people pull back from discretionary shopping because they're spending so much on necessities like food and gas. And that means this year, people are hunting for discounts more than even before, intensely chasing sales and deals. I talked to Krish Chagarajan at the analytics firm DataWeave, it tracks prices, and he says basically stores and shoppers are kind of in this standoff where stores are lowering prices, trying to keep people shopping, while many shoppers are kind of waiting for even bigger discounts. Consumers want better price, so they are sitting on the side, so it's going to really boil down to the consumers blink first or do the retailers blink first. So if retailers blink first, the discounts in December might bring some inflation relief because this year, some people seem to only shop if they find something on sale. So glad you mentioned that because I've had my eye on these sneakers, Alina, that I've held off. I've held off on buying, but my resolve is weakening. So are these big (laughs) sales happening anytime soon? You know, it always depends on the store. Uh, But here's what I learned from Vivek Pandia, who tracks online shopping at Adobe computers and electronics, they're going to have some of the strongest discounts on record. We're expecting down to around 32%. The other categories like toys, apparel, home furniture are seeing very good discounts. Not sure on the footwear front, Mm. but I just want to explain that for some of these things like clothes and home goods, for example, there's been a big story of inventory glut. We had shoppers buying like crazy last year. That meant stores ordered more and more. And then shoppers decided they were over it, just as many of these shipments were still arriving because of supply chain issues. So now if stores have too much of the wrong stuff, a lot of it is likely to be on sale. 
Pandia says the big question is whether people will actually decide to spend their money on all these extra things. So do we have an answer to that question? Well, people are definitely still shopping. Holiday spending is expected to increase. The National Retail Federation predicts about 6 to 8%. That's actually more than your average year. Although if you account for inflation, it does mean we are buying less stuff while spending more money. And it really depends on who we're talking about when we talk about shoppers, because there's this growing divergence between shoppers who are wealthier and those who are less so. Many people are entering this holiday season with the lowest savings they've had in a while. They're shopping with credit cards. A government report this month found credit card balances have recently jumped the most in 20 years. Meanwhile, luxury goods, for example, have actually seen little change from inflation. Even Best Buy said that while shoppers with lower incomes are buying cheaper TVs, shoppers with higher incomes are upgrading electronics, getting fancier versions. While you were talking, I was checking on the sneakers. They were still the same price. I'm not buying them. Still the same price. NPR's Alina Seljuk, thanks a lot. Thank you. Paris Island on the marshy, hurricane-prone South Carolina coast is regarded as the Marine Corps installation most in peril from climate change. Now it's becoming a model for other military bases on combating climate effects. Jay Price of member station WUNC reports from South Carolina's Low Country. Scientists think a permanent solution to the rising water here isn't possible. So the question is how to keep enough of the iconic training base for new recruits above water, at least for a few more decades. Tracy Spencer, the base environmental director, stands atop one of the causeways on Paris Island that support major roads. This road is about 10 feet above sea level. She points across a saltwater pond to another road named Malacon Drive. And Malacon is not, but whenever that road is repaved, we'll probably do the art of the small. The art of the small, that's a phrase they use here a lot. In this case, it means wait till the road needs repaving and then spend a little more to raise it higher rather than spend millions now to lift the road while the pavement is still good. One projection says low areas here could flood more than 300 times a year by 2050. Base officials don't think the water will rise that quickly, but Spencer says that they're still taking some steps. Whether the model shows that it's a six inch difference or a 16-foot difference, it doesn't matter. If we raise the road two feet, it's still a benefit to us. If we plant native plants, it's still a benefit to us. The art of the small is expected to play a key role in new climate resilience plans the Navy will finish next month for Paris Island and Naval Station San Diego. Meredith Berger is an assistant secretary of the Navy. She says these plans will help the Navy figure out how to craft similar ones for more than 90 other installations. So one Marine Corps base, one Navy base, but places where we have the opportunity to learn. The art of the small isn't new. For years, the Navy has done things like build piers higher when it's time to replace them. But Berger said Paris Island has helped institutionalize the approach. Finding every opportunity to make a little change that has a big impact. That is an ethos. That is an approach that everyone is taking because um, we need to be thinking about this at every turn. 
At Paris Island, the Navy has already taken steps like rebuilding key parts of shooting ranges higher and farther from the shore. It's also added solar panels and giant Tesla batteries to make the power grid more storm-resistant. And it's planning new oyster beds to protect the shoreline. But still... They will have to abandon that base and those activities at some point in the future. That's certain. Rob Young heads the Program for the Study of Developed Shorelines at Western Carolina University. Less certain, he says, is the timeline, which depends partly on whether humans begin to slow the effects of climate change. But the fact that eventually Paris Island will have to close doesn't mean that has to happen anytime soon. I think there are places in this country that we will spend money on, even for short-term solutions. He cites Tidewater, Virginia, where he grew up. It's home to a host of crucial military installations, and flooding is already a big problem there. Young says he'd never say it's pointless to spend money at places like Paris Island to slow the impacts. As long as the DOD and base command is really taking seriously this idea that they're not going to be there 50 years from now. So unless something like catastrophic hurricane damage changes the equation, the art of the small, along with some larger measures, could make sense for at least a while longer. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price at Paris Island, South Carolina. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiar's Ian Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, how anti-government protests in Iran are prompting mixed feelings among Iran- Iranians about rooting for their team at the World Cup in Qatar. In the forecast, it'll be mostly cloudy skies today. Temperatures in the lower 50s with scattered showers and gusty winds. Clouds move out overnight, lows dropping to the mid-30s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny. Highs in the upper 40s. And Sunday should be mostly cloudy with more rain likely later in the day. Highs in the upper 50s. Right now, 49 degrees in Boston at 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. Now, business news. A Boston-based search engine startup is getting funding from the twins who sued Mark Zuckerberg for stealing the IT for Facebook. Cameron and Tyler Winkle Voss are investing in the search engine called Consensus. Its founders tell the Boston Business Journal the site combats misinformation by pulling answers from peer-reviewed articles instead of popular search results. A Cape Cod resort is getting creative to attract wintertime guests. The Pelham House Ballroom in Dennis is getting into curling. John McCarthy of Pelham House Hospitality says it's a simplified version of the increasingly popular Olympic ice sport. This is a synthetic ice, so it's not real curling. It's kind of a take on curling. And we actually make it a lounge. So we have live music playing. We have great drinks and food. And then people can rent these curling courts by the hour. The indoor curling lounge will be open Fridays and weekends through January. It's 845. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. Iranians have conflicted views over how to watch their soccer team in the World Cup, happening right across the waters of the Persian Gulf. Iran's in the third month of massive anti-government demonstrations and protesters led by women are being killed and jailed. At the tournament, Iran plays Wales today and the U.S. Tuesday, but some feel like it's not the right time to cheer on the team, at least not the same way as in the past. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports on the reactions from outside and inside Iran. There's no doubt that Iranians love soccer and revere their national soccer team, which makes this scene, posted to Twitter a few nights ago, so extraordinary. In the northwestern Iranian city of Zanjan, people cheered and danced, actually celebrating their team's crushing 6-2 loss to England. Iranians who watched the match in England, meanwhile, were even more outspoken, chanting death to Khamenei. That's Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. In this clip posted to social media, one woman also says, quote, Damn you, Islamic Republic, you've even deprived us of watching our team. Scenes such as these show the dramatic changes in Iran since the death of a young woman in police custody in September, after being detained for alleged improper attire. That sparked what's been called the biggest challenge to the Islamic Republic since its creation. It's hard to fathom now, but Iran even tried to get Qatar to share some hosting duties in this year's World Cup, an effort that went nowhere. Like other Iranians interviewed for this story, Daoud, an architect from northeast Iran, agreed to an interview if his family name isn't used. He says he's worried about repercussions for speaking to the foreign media. Contacted via the Internet, he says those pushing for some kind of co-hosting deal with Qatar must have been dreaming. Since it was announced that Qatar would host the event, Iranian authorities started announcing empty promises, useless lies, and illusionary agreements with Qatar. I personally never believed these lies like all their other promises. Taraj, an Iranian fan from the northern city of Rasht, says the government blundered by building up people's hopes. He says there will be a reckoning now. There is going to be massive public regret when we face how a country the size of the smallest province of Iran has such high achievements from World Cup, and our share is zero. Some wonder if Iranians will even cheer on their team when they take on the U.S. squad on Tuesday. Daoud says he'd love to see Iran beat the Americans, but not because of national pride. On the contrary, he hopes it might generate even more enthusiasm for the anti-government protests that have swept the country. Yes, I am certainly going to watch the Iran-U.S. match. About the result, I hope for a win, because culturally such wins are a good reason to gather people on the streets. The team did try to show solidarity with the protesters when players refused to sing the Iranian national anthem before the match with England. But some protesters say it's impossible for Iran to compete in this cup without being seen as representing the regime in Tehran. Even so, Taraj says he's looking forward to the Iran team taking on the U.S. I believe that every international event, especially on the scale of the World Cup, is an opportunity to be seen and heard, both to the spectators present in the stadium in Qatar and on the streets of Iran after the match. 
He thinks that if the government thought the World Cup would boost its reputation, the protesters at home will remind the world of the grim reality in Iran. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Jack Lepiars. Up next, it's the Marketplace Morning Report. Later today at noon, it's here and now, and Deepa Fernandez is here to tell us about what is on the program today. Deepa, good morning. Hi, Jack. How are you doing this day after Thanksgiving? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm waking up slowly, you know, four <laughs> hours into the shift. We're getting there. How about you? Sh- shrugging, shrugging off the big meal. <laughs> well, we have a lot on today's show. Uh, Peter O'Dowd is going to be speaking with the EU ambassador to the United States for Ukraine, who weighed in on what recent midterm elections mean for Ukraine. And we also have some fun music on the show. I'm going to be speaking with the hosts of Alt Latino about some of the newest and really great Latino music that's out there. And we've got this really fun conversation. Um, I am going to be talking to a Dutch woman who plays American tackle football in the Netherlands. Now, there's, there are 200 plus women's tackle football, American tackle football teams. So we're going to do a bit of a dive into that. Plus the latest on early voting in Georgia, which starts tomorrow. Oh, that's right. Big Senate race there coming up. All right, Deepa, that's coming up at noon. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jack. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by an unlikely story bookstore and cafe. Artist Matt Tavares celebrates the 200th anniversary of Twas the Night Before Christmas, December 3rd, and unlikelystory.com. Hi, it's Robin Young. As you give your year-end contributions to organizations that make the world a better place, how about putting WBUR on your list? Give a gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund. Even your old car can help fuel the journalism that keeps us all moving forward. Learn about all the ways to support WBUR and choose the one that's right for you, please, at WBUR.org. Forecast says it'll be mostly cloudy skies today, rain likely, especially the first half of the day, with highs today in the mid-50s. Clearing skies tonight, lows dropping to the mid-30s. Right now, it is 49 degrees in Boston. The time is 8.52. Remote work could be making holiday travel less horrible. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their clients' best interest. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore in for David Brancaccio. Thanksgiving week is traditionally the biggest travel week of the year, and experts say this year's holiday might be the busiest since the start of the pandemic. But you know who may have an easier time traveling this year? Remote workers. A lot of them are already where they want to be, or they got there early. And that could take some of the pressure off for the rest of us from the long lines in traffic and crowded airports. Marketplace's Kristen Schwab reports. Thanksgiving travel has traditionally happened over a small and intense period, usually Tuesday through Sunday. What we're seeing this year is the peak actually started, if you will, last Friday. Robert Mann is an airline industry analyst. He says because some people can now work remotely, they're choosing to fly earlier, either to spend more time at their destination or save money. Haley Berg, an economist at the travel app Hopper, says Thanksgiving flight prices were up 30% this year, but travelers who had more flexibility saved on average $100 per ticket. 
but it also saves some stress of those long lines and really busy days. Which in turn helps airlines that are facing a shortage of pilots and other workers. Having demand spread out over more days does allow airlines and airports to better manage staffing, keep up with the networks that they're flying. And manage flight delays that can snowball into bigger disruptions. She says it doesn't mean you won't come across any hiccups traveling, but it could have been worse. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. Four major railway workers unions have agreed on a date to potentially go on strike after they voted not to approve a labor deal with rail carriers. One of the points of contention is the number of sick days allowed. If an agreement isn't reached, the strike could happen December 9th. The Association of American Railroads says a strike could cost the U.S. economy $2 billion a day. Global growth is going to slow down next year to 1.2%. That's according to the International Institute of Finance. That's as weak as it was in 2009. With that, let's see how markets are doing. Let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is up two-tenths of a percent. The S&P futures are down less than a tenth of a percent. NASDAQ futures down three-tenths of a percent. Dow futures up a tenth of a percent. And the yield on the 10-year Treasury is 3.744%. You might have seen clips of violent confrontations at Foxconn factories in Zhengzhou, China, over COVID restrictions. Well, Foxconn is one of Apple's main manufacturers, and Reuters is reporting that production of Apple's iPhones there could fall by at least 30% next month because of the unrest. And Apple shares are down 1.2% in pre-market trading. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. A lot of developing countries have two big problems that are at odds with one another. They need to spend money on the consequences of climate change, think natural disasters, environmental degradation, but they are also, many of them, deeply in debt. There is a new way of trying to deal with both at the same time. Anatoly Kermanayev is a reporter at the New York Times who recently published a story on something called debt for nature swaps. He joins us. Good morning. Good morning, Sabri. Can you help us understand how this works? And you wrote about the case of Belize. So you got a country with a debt problem. It wants to spend money on conservation in this case. How do you put the two together? At the very simplest, you can think of it as refinancing a mortgage. Uh, right, you have uh, existing debt load and, and you're trying to exchange it for something that hopefully will have low interest rates and you can pay it at a later date. So uh, in the case of Belize, it was approached by a local um, marine biologist who suggested them a plan, basically her nonprofit, uh, she worked for the Nature Conservancy of the US, would uh, lend money to the government of Belize to repay the, the debt. And, and in return, some of the savings that the government of Belize would get from that transaction would have to go towards marine conservation. So you have an environmental group that says, we will lend you the money to repay your debts and use some of it to spend on conservation. But where does an environmental group like the Nature Conservancy or whoever, where do they get $350 million? They uh, went to Credit Suisse, a big uh, global investment bank, and they asked them to participate in the transaction. Credit Suisse gave them the money, gave the Nature Conservancy the money, and on their side, they, you know, basically issued new debt themselves. But if a country has high interest rates that it's you know trying to get out of, trying to get better terms on, 
usually for developing countries, that's because there's a certain amount of risk. So if it gets new loans, does that mean that, you know, the environmental group is taking on risk but not getting compensated for it or likewise Credit Suisse? The way that Nature Conservancy and its partners were able to get around this is to get involved the development arm of U.S. Treasury, which guaranteed the transaction. So, so basically, the risk of Belize became the risk of the United States. So if one of the parties doesn't do their part, they can be taken to international courts and, and sued for it. Now, in this case, $350 million, that is obviously a lot of money. But of course, just a piece of that gets spent on conservation. The United Nations estimated $125 trillion would need to be spent globally by everybody to reach net zero emissions by 2050. So, I mean, how far can this kind of model go? You know, Belize has been the largest transaction of this kind to, to date. And the idea is that now that the model, you know, has been worked out, it can be scaled up, so to speak, you know, the, the amounts can keep increasing. The second and perhaps more interesting aspect of it to me is the way it changes mentality of stakeholders. What is valuable to us here? You know, what kind of development do we want? What kind of a nation do we want to be? Do we want to be based on extraction of natural resources and mass tourism and cruise ships? Or, or do we want to base our financial growth, economic growth on, on more sustainable models that can also bring in money into the, the public coffers? Anatoly Kermanayev is a reporter at the New York Times. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sabri. Our digital producer is Redmond Carolipio. Our engineers are Justin Duller and Nick Esposito. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is WBUR. Coming up next, it's the BBC. Forecast says mostly cloudy today with scattered showers, highs in the mid-50s. Right now, 49 degrees in Boston at 8.59. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science. With seasonal exhibit All Aboard, Trains at Science Park, plus 4D and Omni Theater adventures like the Polar Express. Tickets at MOS.org. And Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Across North America every year, migratory monarch butterflies travel thousands of miles. Imagine the fact that these butterflies migrate to Mexico. How does it something that weighs about half a gram manage to do what you can't do? The monarch butterfly is now endangered, but they can be saved. Find out how. On Point, this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.